Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 24th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Ukrainians have been arriving into this country since war broke out a month ago. The scale of the response to this crisis has been unprecedented. Up to, uh, as, of, as of yesterday evening, 10,414 Ukrainians have come to Ireland. Dedicated teams are meeting the refugees at airports and at ports. We have specifically prepared reception areas and they include designated spaces for children and adults and quiet spaces. Ukrainians are given temporary protection as soon as they arrive here. This means that Ukrainian nationals fleeing the conflict will be allowed to work and will be given access to health services, accommodation, education for children and other social supports. Access to public services and supports should happen without any delay for refugees. The Department of Social Protection is registering those arriving into Dublin airport for PPSN numbers so that they can have quick access to income support. The International Protection Accommodation Service, IPAS, is providing short-term accommodation. To date, 4,942 Ukrainian nationals have sought accommodation from IPAS. It's been a massive job of work already. IPAS has contracted over 2,500 hotel rooms with additional capacity also being pursued through hotels, guest houses and B&Bs, accommodation pledges by the general public, state-owned or private properties which may be suitable for short-term accommodation, religious properties and local authority facilities. With thousands more expected to come, much more will need to be done in order to house people. My department has worked with local authorities which played a pivotal role in securing short-term accommodation over St. Patrick's weekend when hotel availability was more limited. We've engaged with the CCMA about drawing on emergency accommodation in community centres again if necessary. Everything possible is being looked at. And we've engaged with convention centres about installing emergency accommodation in those facilities and with the Defence Forces about options if existing capacity was insufficient. People's generosity offering to take people into their own homes will be necessary. Many people in Irish society wish to help directly. And matching refugees with offers of accommodation is already underway. The government has worked with the Red Cross to put in place a national pledge as the mechanism for challenging the offers of accommodation which many members of the public wish to provide. The website through which offers of accommodation can be pledged is available online at registerofpledges.redcross.ie. There has been over 20,000 pledges so far from people offering to house refugees who are predominantly women and children. Child protection has to be a priority. For this reason, anyone offering a room or rooms in a shared home will have to be vetted before Ukrainian refugees are matched with them. None of this is going to be easy. We are scaling up our operation and just we have to be honest, this isn't going to be perfect from day one. 
and we're going to have to work to develop all the various connections from, from travel to transport to education to early years to access to the job market. So there will be, there will be hiccups as we develop this system. But this is Ireland's response to a brutal war Russia has raged on Ukraine. They're fleeing from invasion and we're offering them shelter and we're offering them safety. And we need help from all sectors of Irish society and from communities across Ireland if we are to respond effectively to the needs of people who have been deeply wronged and subjected to, uh, to, to terrible suffering. That's Minister Roderick O'Gorman who was outlining the country's response to this crisis to Shannon Aaron yesterday. Let's go to Nick Henderson who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. Good morning, Nick. Thanks for joining us, as always, on the programme. When we listen to the Minister, there's no underestimating the scale of this challenge that lies ahead of us. If ever we needed to come together as a country, the time is now. Can we do it? Can we do what is being asked of us? Yeah, I I believe we can. Uh, I really do. Uh, I think the, the state has already shown in the the one month since the invasion began that we can uh we can do it uh it will be extremely challenging uh and i think this maybe has been the easier part month uh, and i think the coming months will be will be difficult uh but it, it's plain to see for us all to see that, that there's no um possibility and no contemplation that we 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 can't not do this um you know we 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 have taken 10,000 ukrainian people and re- residents of ukraine who may not who long-term residents of ukraine have come to ireland and that amounts to the same number of people who've claimed asylum in ireland since 20 since 2019 so that that shows uh how how the magnitude of this issue it's incredible uh, it is incredible, mm. but at the same time, you know, Poland, I think, has had two million people, um, which is a, a huge number of people. Um, so I think we can do it. Mm. Uh, I think it will require collective efforts. I think there needs to be uh, a period of, of, when I say patience, and I think that means that everybody, all the actors involved are doing as much as they can. Uh, but I, as Minister O'Gorman said, I don't think the state will get this right immediately. We're, we're as an organisation, probably not getting it right. We're, we're trying to pivot our services across. Uh, but I think we can do it. Um, it, it will just require an, an ongoing uh, and extraordinary effort. And it's the right thing to do. It's know. so many people in such a, a short space of time that complicates it all the further. And those numbers will continue to grow, as we discussed last time around. And as things stand, it, it seems as though 10,000 people here yesterday, in a week from now, that'll be 20,000. In a month from then, 40,000, if you listen to the Tarnishtia. And now with the threat of chemical weapons and possibly nuclear weapons, uh, we're probably going to see more people flee Ukraine and those numbers increase. Uh, I don't know if they'll double every month or, or what would you expect yeah that's hard to tell and i think the only person who can really drive that you can who could tell us is, is probably without being trite vladimir putin um he, he's driving this war and he could end it uh tomorrow and there could be some sort of peace agreement and the the, the number of people fleeing may reduce that being said for every day of war 
there's probably another period of, say, six months of uh, repair and rehabilitation uh, in terms of people's homes that have been have been lost or, or simply getting back to people's homes. So it, it, we're not, we don't know, and I don't think the state themselves know. And uh, there's been various numbers issued by government ministers in the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure it's that helpful that that these big numbers are put out there because we don't know that for sure. Uh, but there are there are several scenarios, and as you say, the worst case scenario is is horrific, uh, and that would be some sort of, as you say, biological weapon, and that would result in again more people fleeing. Mm. Um, so we don't know, but I think the state is preparing for large numbers of people, uh, and I think the the crunch, as we've spoken about before, Michael. The crunch in all of this will be the longer-term accommodation issue. So we have people in hotels. I think half of the 10,000 people who've arrived are in hotels, uh, and the state uh, are, are trying to get more capacity every day. And, and whether they can continue to do that is the challenge, and that's why they're looking for pledges of accommodation. Mm. Yeah, and they've asked uh, the local authorities around uh, the country to free up whatever they can, uh, and I think they were to get back to them yesterday. Uh, have you heard anything in relation that to that? We did ask uh, both of our local county councils, uh, the county council in Mead and Louth County Council, what their response to the Department of Housing has been in respect of that. We haven't heard back from them yet, uh, but uh, are the councils proactively working on this, do you know? I, I, I think they are, and I presume they are, but I don't know that for sure, uh, and I haven't heard it. I was at a meeting um, at which the Department of Housing were at, but that was two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago today. But, you know, things have changed so quickly. I, I think they are preparing a response. Whether they can bring in, in, in extra stock or accommodation that they have, or whether people will be entitled to housing assistance payment. But we, as we've spoken about again, Michael, that there is very limited supply. So I think the challenge will be bringing in uh, unused supply of accommodation. And we, we've been thinking in our organization whether there could be something around, for example, uh, encouraging people who own holiday homes to offer their holiday home, get a, get a, a reimbursement for that, not the equivalent of rent, but something that would cover uh, cover some some basic costs mm. to bring in the supply that that supply. So it would, it would be, be cheaper than rent. hotels, wouldn't it? It would, it would, and, we and far more appropriate. I mean, we know from uh, the situation that uh, people uh, who are homeless in, in this country have uh, described. Uh, hotel is lovely to get away for a relaxing break, but it is not a place to live because you don't have a bedroom of your own, you don't have a kitchen of your own, you don't have somewhere for the children to study, etc., etc. Yeah, exactly. And let's not forget that there's two thousand people who are or who have applied for asylum in Ireland and who are living in hotels already. Uh, And that number has increased over the last nine months. And that's not people who who are fleeing Ukraine. Mm. Uh, And there's significant problems and issues there. Uh, Kids not getting access to schools, um, people not receiving what's called the temporary residence certificate, which triggers a series of, 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 a, of a payment called the daily expenses uh, allowance and so mm. on and so on. So there's already that problem and there's the cost. Mm. Uh, and I suppose what the, the government will be looking to do is to try to 
uh, keep a flow of people going through the hotels uh, so that new people who are arriving can go in and the people who've been here for a longer period of time can move on to some sort of medium-term accommodation. Mm. Uh, I think they are working on it. I think the, the local authorities will be considering this. Uh, uh, I don't uh, know if there's been a public position yet. And if people make holiday homes available to refugees, uh, whether uh, they're reimbursed for that or um, they're paid for it uh, yeah. or, or not, um, what it, uh, becomes uh, of the refugees in terms of their rights? Do they get tenancy rights? Uh, because that will be of concern to people as well. If they're allowing people to stay in their home for nothing uh, and they become tenants and they can't move them out. Yeah, I think you'd have to make it clear that this is a short term thing. It would probably be a license and it would probably be for a maximum of uh, maybe nine months. I think there is a limit. I don't have it immediately to hand Mm. um, a period of time after which a person does get tenancy rights. I think it's plain nobody would be wanting, or few people I'd imagine would want to do this um, if it was going to be a long term, i.e. beyond six months or nine months Mm. period of time. Mm. But it may be, and it's not a perfect solution by any means, and it's only one possible solution, but it may be a way of bringing in uh, that extra supply. We were looking at the number of holiday homes that exist in Ireland, I think, yesterday. I think it's something like 24,000. 4, nice, quite okay. sizable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, don't get me wrong, it is not the only option, mm. um, but it, 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 it could be one um line of supply that is used to to accommodate mm. people. Well, if you could get four people into each home, uh, you have 100,000 places straight away, don't you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a, a lot of accommodation that could be made uh, available. What about all of the voids around the country, the local authority houses uh, where people have moved out and they haven't been rented out again? People complain about them all the time. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, and uh, will they need to be brought up to standard <laughs> before people can move into them? Or will there be a change in those standards in order to deal with the scale of this problem? Yeah, I don't think there should be a change of standards and that's one reason why holiday homes are maybe a a good option because they're to the the rental code already. There are a large, large number of vacant properties. We all see them as we pass through any town and village in in Ireland. Mm. But I think that's a long-term thing and I I, I think we've recommended that as a possible route for, say, alternatives to direct provision or onward accommodation or just generally urban, um, suburban or rural renewal. But I can't see how a a lot of those properties, uh, a significant number of those those properties could be turned around in such a short period of time because in one month, 10,000 people have arrived. Mm. So, you know, we need to be identifying supply that could be activated within almost days or, or, or weeks, not not months. Yeah, there's many aspects uh, to protecting people. These people are coming here for protection from the war, but when they're here, we do need to protect them from all sorts of uh, things. And we're going to be talking to Keno Callaghan of uh, the Social Democrats uh, a little bit later on. We heard recently of landlords offering accommodation uh, to people in return for sex. Uh, we heard Roger Gorman talk uh, a moment ago about vetting people uh, places and the people who own them if children are moving into shared accommodation and there is a question about protecting children and women who are so vulnerable. Indeed I think Keno Callahan has been saying that some Ukrainian women have already been offered uh, accommodation from landlords in return for sex. Yeah it's, it's, 
it speaks for itself. It's, yeah. it, I think we all can all say it's disgusting. Um, uh, and uh, as uh, there is legislation, as you could say, or, or some sort of action on in, within the power of the dial that, that mm. they're trying to, to activate. There is also the issue of um, children who have been who fled Ukraine, unaccompanied children, um, orphans, uh, and I know Tuzla, the Child and Family Agency, are aware of this. I think there was a figure of maybe 40 unaccompanied children who've been taken into care, uh, into the care of the state with Tuzla. Uh, so, so that's important, and it's it's all important, all incumbent incumbent on us all to make sure children are properly cared for, uh, and um, women, um, and it is predominantly women as we as we see it in our queries, and uh, and that's because men cannot leave or being or being told not to leave at least. So they need to be that needs to be ruled out. Uh, it, completely uh, uh, and it, yeah that sort of behaviour speaks for itself and it is, is disgusting Okay well uh, there's many challenges ahead uh, quite obviously uh, and uh, we're living through remarkable times Nick thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning that's Nick Henderson who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council Michael Reed on LMFM. Some calls coming into us already, and thanks to Sinead, who's in Drogheda and phoned us this morning saying she thinks the Irish people have shown their true nature in the numbers who have stepped forward to take in refugees from Ukraine. Sinead says, I don't have the room myself, but I have supported in other ways, and it fills me with pride to see the response from this country. There is so much goodness in Ireland, and sometimes that is forgotten about. Thank you indeed, Sinead. Uh, another call that uh, comes to us from Declan, who's in Dundalk, who wonders if it would be more prudent to take a certain number of refugees at a time and make sure those who come here are looked after properly. Say we took in 20,000, got them sorted out, and then another 20,000, uh, and so on. Declan says he, he just worries that we may have bitten off more than we can chew. Well, I think Nick Henderson probably put that best, Declan, when he said, if that's the case, there's only one person to blame and his name is Vladimir Putin uh, and ha- has put these people in the situation where they have to flee for their lives. It's not something that you can plan in advance, especially if you're facing a chemical threat or a nuclear threat, which now appears to be on the cards. And it's certainly something that they're talking about very openly on Russian TV and indeed elsewhere for that matter, as we'll hear later in the programme. But let's hear an alternative view to the war in Ukraine from Mick Wallace. The lack of diplomatic thinking and the emphasis on military thinking, the emphasis on pouring more arms into Ukraine to prolong the war uh, is not going to help matters. In my opinion, Ukraine is being used by US and NATO in their proxy war to undermine Russia. And the Americans and NATO have made it clear that they're prepared to fight Russia, to undermine Russia, down to the last Ukrainian. They'll give Ukraine all the guns they want to fight against them and to prolong this war 
but it's the Ukrainians that are dying. That's the Irish MEP Mick Wallace he was speaking to South East Radio, by the way. Uh, thanks to Seamus and Dundalk who was on to say that he, he worries that people will use the excuse of the war to put prices up. We saw petrol and diesel and how the prices differed from garage to garage. There is talk that the war continues uh, and uh, as it does, petrol and diesel will have to be rationed. How are people supposed to commute to work or do anything if that is the case? Well, the cost of living certainly is a topical issue. As you know, everything is going up and even now the very basics are pushed beyond the reach of many ordinary people. So our airwaves are now filled with people sharing their stories of how incredibly difficult it is just to make ends meet. People can barely afford to light and heat their homes. And we now need to talk about food, Minister, because the soaring cost of energy and fuel, problems with supply chains, and the impact of this uh, criminal war means that the price of groceries is going through the roof. So families now, in real terms, are stretched to put food on the table and money just doesn't go far when it comes to the weekly shop. People are down to the bare essentials and they have very little left at the end of the week. That's the Sinn Féin President Mary Lou Macdonald who was speaking during leaders' questions in Dáil yesterday. The Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, responded. I think people will accept that this is a global phenomenon. Uh, all developed economies in the world are now experiencing a high level of inflation. Our neighbours in the UK, the latest figure is 6.2%. In the United States, it is just under 8%. So these are uh, unprecedented times and the level of inflation that we are witnessing and that people are having to deal with in their day-to-day lives uh, is without parallel uh, in recent modern history. And that is why the government is not standing idly by. The government is not an observer or a commentator. You are correct. The government has already taken very significant steps. Okay, that's the government's argument rejected by Sinn Féin. When you say the government is at one on these matters, I can only assume that you are therefore reiterating the position of of the finance minister that you have no plans to take further measures this side of October. But the minister was insistent that the government is doing all that it can. I think through our actions to date we have demonstrated that the government is agile and the government is responsive and the government is uh, constantly monitoring the evolving situation. We are experiencing an incredible amount of volatility and we have responded to date and we will keep the situation under review and consider what our options are on an ongoing basis. But we also have to be honest with people and say we cannot as a government fully insulate the Irish economy, households and businesses from the economic fallout of the appalling war in Ukraine. And it would be disingenuous to suggest that we can. We've already made decisive steps uh, and, as I said, we'll keep the situation under review. But we also need consistency from you, Deputy. You came into the House here yesterday and called for the removal of VAT. On the very same day, uh, you put forward a motion in the Dáil calling for a reduction in VAT. And it's fine in opposition to be loose in your language and to suggest that the government can do things that it cannot do. You know well that the government does not have within its armoury at this point in time the ability to reduce or indeed to remove VAT. And you should be honest with people as well and not mislead them. Fianna Fáil's Michael McGrath, the Minister, was responding to the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou Macdonald. 
As you heard earlier, Keen O'Callaghan told uh, the doll yesterday about how some Ukrainian women are being offered accommodation by unscrupulous landlords. And we'll hear a little bit of what he had to say now. As the rental crisis deepens, we're seeing growing reports of a cohort of landlords attempting to exploit the vulnerable position that some tenants are in and renters are in by demanding sex in lieu of rent or for a reduced rent. There have also been recently uh, some very disturbing reports of some individuals attempting to exploit women fleeing uh, from the war in Ukraine uh, who are looking for somewhere safe to stay uh, with with these offers of sex in lieu of rent. One landlord uh, offered accommodation in Clare without rent to a slim Ukrainian woman with an expectation of sex and demanded a photo from prospective renters before uh, they would reveal the location of the property. This is despicable uh, behaviour from predatory landlords attempting to exploit uh, people traumatised uh, from fleeing war. And it's in sharp contrast to the thousands of Irish families who are opening up their homes in a spirit of generosity and welcome and support and solidarity uh, to people from U- Ukraine, which I believe is the overwhelming f- feeling uh, of Irish people. Keen O'Callaghan is a TD for Dublin Bay North and he is the housing spokesperson for the Social Democrats and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Keen O'Callaghan. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It sounds incredible to some degree, but it's not for the first time that we've heard reports of landlords asking women for sex in return for accommodation. And you were speaking to a bill that you introduced to the Oireachtas yesterday, which would stamp this out. Tell us a little a bit more if you want. Yeah, and I think firstly it's important to say that look, the vast majority of traditional landlords are as appalled at this behaviour as anyone else. And in fact some of this practice is is, is not from landlords at all. It's from people who are subletting uh, you know, they're renting uh, maybe from a traditional landlord and then they're looking to sublet a room and then they're trying to put these conditions on on someone who's looking to sublet that that room. The bill uh, that we had in the Dáil yesterday is it's called the Ban on Sex for Rent Bill and that creates two specific criminal offences. So the first one would be for anyone that is demanding sex in lieu of rent or for a reduced rent, that would be a criminal specific criminal offence. And then there would be a second specific criminal offence for anyone that publishes or facilitates advertising uh, for these uh, types of, of demands or, or offers as well. Uh, the uh, the bill in itself, and there is cross-party support for it, and there was very strong support for it uh, in, in the all yesterday and from the government as well. Uh, we're not suggesting that if it passes that this will entirely stamp it out, but it would be a strong deterrent on this. There are wider issues that are, are at play here, unfortunately, with the way things have gone in the, in the housing crisis and the rental section. The more pressure renters are under, there will always be some people that will seek to exploit that. So there are wider measures that are needed to to address that. And ultimately, until that's fully addressed, I, I think you'll always find people trying to exploit this, this situation, a small minority. But we do think this bill will help in terms of making this a specific criminal offence. OK, I suppose uh, there's a, a couple of questions about it. Do you need legislation specifically criminalising this practice? Uh, because it is illegal to buy sex, isn't it? It is, yes, but it isn't. It, it, there, there isn't a specific criminal offence on this. So, for example, the, the Gardaí don't record, on the Pulse system, don't record complaints uh, of this nature because it's not a specific criminal offence. So we've no data from the Gardaí on this. 
it means that people wanted to come forward with complaints. It's harder for them to do so to the guards because there isn't the, the specific offence there for them to, to make a complaint about. It, it's, it's harder for proof as well on it. And then there isn't, there isn't anything specifically to put a legal obligation on platforms. Uh, you know, it was mainly online platforms for, for, which are hosting these ads. I think they've a, they've a moral and an ethical obligation uh, not to be hosting these ads as it is, but unfortunately some of them aren't uh, taking that responsibility seriously and this would put a legal onus on them as well. So this would, would help uh, the situation. It, it, it's not going to solve it. Uh, there are other, there is other legislation that could be used, but it would, it's, it would be harder under existing legislation uh, for people to be able to prove a case. Okay. Uh, and you say uh, there's cross-party support. The government says it, it won't oppose the bill, but I think the government does have some concerns uh, and uh, probably uh, most so with uh, the sanction of €50,000 as a fine for somebody caught uh, offering accommodation in return for sex. Yeah, well, they feel that the fine that's mentioned in it uh, for the, and that would apply to advertising pla- platforms, they feel that that is... Uh, disproportionate and I certainly no issue in, in terms of you know amending the, the legislation uh, so that the government would be happy uh, with it and to achieve consensus uh, on this and I, I've written to the Minister for Justice Helen McEntee who's dealing with this bill uh, to engage with her so that we can move this bill forward as quickly as possible. They have raised some other you know technical uh, criticisms of the bill which would be normal just about needing to tighten up the the wording of the bill, make it more precise. And they have the, the resources in terms of drafting and advice from the Attorney General's office to be able to help uh, and assist with that. So very happy to, to work with them, engage with them on that so we can get this bill through as quickly uh, as possible. Okay, uh, I suppose, uh, as you say, uh, it's probably uh, not all that common, but it highlights how dire the housing situation in this country is before we see thousands and thousands of people, uh, an unknown amount of people arrive into the country in need of housing. Yeah, and, and we don't have data, specific data in Ireland to the extent of the problem, but there is uh, data from the UK and there's research done by the UK housing charity Shelter and that showed that over a period of about a year and a half between March 2020 and September 2021, they've estimated that 59,000 women in the UK were propositioned for sex in lieu of rent. So, I mean, I would hope that it's not as extensive uh, in Ireland as that, but that does show the extent of the problems that they have, where they have hard data on this. It, we we do need data on this here as well. Uh, having a specific criminal offence in it would actually would help in that regard, also. But you are right; like, there's, it is part of a much wider mm. problem. This is really the sharp, the sharpest edge of, of exploitation of, of people. I mean, the, you know, there's. People will, you know, prospective tenants will tell you all sorts of uh, stories about, you know, when they're looking for someone to rent, uh, how, you know, and and often lots of landlords are are very, very good, take their role very, very seriously, have a very genuine interest uh, in their tenants and trying to assist them as as much as possible. And and I think that's the the case for the majority of landlords, no question about that. But you will have prospective tenants telling you stories about all sorts of really kind of creepy situations that they're put in. Uh, all sorts of you know personal invasive questions being asked, you know requests for photos, all this sort of sort of stuff that is very unsettling. And then because they're in such a tight situation, trying to find somewhere to rent, uh, you know that obviously creates a lot of a lot of stress and a lot of issues for people because 
that, that is, there is a huge power imbalance and we don't mm. have the kind of, you know, the same kind of rights for, for tenants and security tenure here in Ireland that, that we have in most other European countries. So not only do we have really high rents, we have a lot of insecurity going with that as well. So that does mm. need to be uh, addressed as well as issues around housing supply and investing much more in, in cost rental, affordable purchase homes, so, social housing, so that there isn't this big pressure uh, on the rented sector that there is at the moment. Okay, well I think most people are, are decent people and uh, I think most decent thinking people will find this pretty repugnant. Uh, but what about the uh, influx of uh, Ukrainian refugees? 10,000 today, 20,000 by the end of the week, 40,000 by the end of the following month and it could go as high as 200,000. Uh, as we've been hearing, uh, the government uh, is pulling out all of the stops, it seems. Uh, can we facilitate these people? do you think? Can we provide housing specifically for them? There's no question that it's, it's going to be a huge challenge. I, we, I mean, we have to, uh, they're fleeing from war. We have to do our bit in terms of supporting, supporting them. I, no doubt uh, the vast majority of Irish people want us to, to do everything we can to support people fleeing from war in, in Ukraine. It's going, to take, it's going to take a huge collective effort. There's no question about that. Uh, it's going to take, you know, the government are talking about, uh, you know, waiving in terms of planning for providing temporary accommodation, uh, bringing in measures like that. That's going to be necessary. Uh, at the moment, a huge amount of Irish families are very generously registering to take people in, and that's, that's incredibly generous for people to be doing that. But there will obviously be a limit on, on the amount of people that can do that as, as well. But this is just this is one of these challenges that we have to have to face that we need to face as a country. If we were in any sort of a sim- similar situation, we'd be reliant on goodwill of people uh, around Europe to do likewise uh, for us. So we, we, you know, it's a huge challenge, and I've no doubt that as, as a people we will rise to that challenge. Okay. Thank you for talking to us. Uh, thanks for your time. Keen O'Callaghan, Social Democrats TD for Dublin Bay North and his party's spokesperson on housing. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. It's a remarkable day. Uh, we are living through remarkable times and on this remarkable day there will be three major meetings of world leaders today. The European Council which will see the leaders of uh, the 27 European countries come together. A meeting of NATO and as you've been hearing this morning G7 leaders will also meet today. President Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine is causing death and destruction every day. Allies stand united in support for the brave people of Ukraine and against the Kremlin's cruelty. Putin must end this war, allow aid and safe passage of civilians, and engage in real diplomacy. This is NATO's Secretary General speaking ahead of today's NATO summit. An extraordinary NATO summit in an extraordinary security situation where we face the biggest security threat uh, for a generation since, since actually the, the end of the Second World War. Um, and, um, and therefore I, I, I believe this is an important meeting and I'm confident that allies will agree uh, on important issues including on the importance of providing support to Ukraine, uh, strengthening our own deterrence and defence, 
and also provide support to other partners which are now under pressure from Russia, for instance, Georgia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. And the 30 countries who are members of NATO will come together today to look at the military capability that NATO has around Ukraine's borders. There are now hundreds of thousands of Allied troops at heightened readiness across the lines. 100,000 US troops in Europe and 40,000 forces under direct NATO command, mostly in the eastern part of the alliance. All backed by major air and naval power, including with five carrier strike groups in the high north and in the Mediterranean. So what is NATO's next move in response to this war? Well, the leaders of NATO are expected today to increase that military machine that is already in place in order to send a strong message to Russia. With major increases to our forces in the eastern part of the alliance, on land, in the air and at sea. The first step is the deployment of four new NATO battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. Along with our existing forces in the Baltic countries and Poland, this means that we will have eight multinational NATO battle groups all along the eastern flank. From the Baltic, to the Black Sea. It's pretty incredible. And uh, the world leaders who will attend today's summit of NATO will reaffirm their support for Ukraine. Ukraine has the right to self-defence under, uh, under the UN Charter. And we are helping Ukrainians to uphold this fundamental right. Since 2014, allies have trained Ukraine's armed forces and significantly strengthen their capabilities. They are putting that training into practice now on the front lines with great bravery. In the last months, allies have stepped up military support, providing anti-tank and air defense systems, drones, fuel and ammunition, as well as financial aid and hosting millions of refugees. And they will commit to additional support. Including cybersecurity assistance, as well as equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, biological and radiological and nuclear threats. But NATO's support for Ukraine will not see NATO enter into this conflict directly or into a war with Russia. But we have a responsibility to ensure that the war does not escalate beyond Ukraine and become a conflict between NATO and Russia. This would cause even more death and even more destruction. And NATO will today also send strong messages to both China and to Belarus. I expect leaders will call on China to live up to its responsibilities as a member of the UN Security Council. Refrain from supporting Russia's war effort and join the rest of the world in calling for an immediate peaceful end to this war. 
Now that's Jens Stoltenberg, who is NATO's Secretary General. Let's go to Ukraine and the President of Ukraine, who made a rare address in English. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. It tries to show that only crude and cruel force matters. It tries to show that people do not matter as well as everything else that make us people. That's the reason we all must stop Russia. The world must stop the war. I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. The acts of terror against peaceful people go on. One month already, that long. It breaks my heart, hearts of all Ukrainians and every free person on the planet. That's why I ask you to stand against the war, starting from March 24th, exactly one month after the Russian invasion. From this day and after then, show your standing. Come from your offices, your homes, your schools and universities. Come in the name of peace. Come with Ukrainian symbols to support Ukraine, to support freedom, to support life. Come to your squares, your streets. Make yourselves visible and heard. Say that people matter, freedom matters, peace matters, Ukraine matters. From March 24th, in downtowns of your cities, all as one together who want to stop the war. That's the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. Now, the war in Ukraine, the Russian onslaught has been brutal, but it's quite possible we haven't seen anything yet because this could turn a whole lot worse and it's feared it could turn a whole lot worse quite soon. There is a threat of chemical weapons. On chemical weapons, first of all, any use of chemical weapons would, would, would totally change the nature of the conflict. And it will be a blatant violation of uh, international law and will have far-reaching consequences. And I, think, and I think that's the most important message to convey, uh, that uh, uh, any use of chemical weapons is, is absolutely unacceptable and will have far-reaching consequences. Far-reaching consequences for Vladimir Putin and for Russia if they use chemical weapons against Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. That's the message from NATO. And chemical weapons would be horrific, but it could be a whole lot worse. It could be a nuclear attack. And that is something that is being talked about quite openly now on Russian TV. And we're going to hear now from a spokesperson for Vladimir Putin. This is Dmitry Peskov who was asked continuously on CNN by Christiane Amanpour if Russia would use nuclear weapons. I want to ask you again, is President Putin, because again, the Finnish president said to me that when he asked 
Putin directly about this because President Putin has laid that card on the table. President Putin said that if anybody tries to stop him, very bad things will happen. And I want to know whether you are convinced or confident that your boss will not use that option. Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. That's the message from, message from Russia. Nuclear weapons can be used. Uh, that's Kremlin spokesperson uh, Dmitry Peskov speaking to Christiane Amanpour on CNN. The thoughts of nuclear weapons being used anywhere on this planet are really too much to contemplate. Russia must stop its nuclear saber rattling. This is dangerous and it is irresponsible. NATO is there to protect and defend all allies. And we convey a very clear message to Russia that the nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. And um, um, uh, it just highlights the importance of ending the war in Ukraine. Because we need to do everything we can to prevent the war from escalating beyond Ukraine and becoming even more deadly and even more dangerous than uh, what we see today. Um, any use of nuclear weapons will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict, and Russia must understand that a nuclear war should never be fought, and, never, and they can never win a nuclear war. Um, this is actually something that Russia has agreed to again and again, and uh, the continued nuclear saber-rattling from uh, uh, Russia, the, the nuclear rhetoric is actually contradicting what they have stated uh, in the UN and in other uh, formats, uh, agreeing that we should uh, do whatever we can to prevent a nuclear uh, conflict. A strong message from NATO to Russia not to use nuclear weapons. NATO has plans in place to protect all allies against any threat. But our main message is that Russia should stop this dangerous, irresponsible nuclear rhetoric. Uh, but, there, but, 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 there, but let there be no doubt about our readiness to protect and defend allies against any threat, any attack. Um, and of course, we have plans in place to do exactly that. So much uncertainty. It's unreal. That's Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I think it's probably unfortunate. Actually, it's very unfortunate uh, that uh, the chief superintendent of uh, the Loud Garda division has become a household name. I think it's unfortunate that that is uh, the case because uh, the reason Christy Mangan has become a household name is because of the drugs problem in this area and uh, the Garda fight against uh, that drugs problem. The war on drugs has been pretty successful, uh, it seems, and probably all the more unfortunate is the fact that Christy Mangan is now retiring. He joins us, and a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning, Chief Superintendent. Good morning, Michael. You've had a, a long and prestigious uh, career, and uh, you've spent, what, five years or so in the Drogheda area? Yes, I, I came here in 2017 uh, as Chief Superintendent, so 
I've had five years here and 35 in, in, in other places all around Ireland. And you've been challenged uh, in this area and it's uh, known, I suppose, as uh, the Drogheda Drugs Feud or was known uh, and hasn't uh, been uh, as uh, newsworthy, if you like, uh, in recent times. But it's a problem that's extended right across this county and this region for that matter. Yes, it's a very serious problem. Uh, It will always be, unfortunately, a serious problem uh, unless... You know, serious resources are put in to combat the activities of, of certain people who are, you know, in, endeavouring to, to make their, their life's fortune out of the misery of others uh, through through their drug profits. That, that's exactly what, what it's all about. Mm. And through the five years that you've spent here, we've seen lives destroyed, lives lost uh, and many people put behind bars. Yes, and it has been very, very difficult for, uh, obviously, families uh, of, of the deceased you know, families, uh, you know, their, their loved ones get involved in, in, in certain activities, um, you know, and then become the targets of the drug dealers through intimidation. And then follow between people, you know, results uh, terribly, uh, results in, in, in the death of, of people. And, and that leaves a, a huge long-term effect on families on, uh, and on communities. Uh, but I will say that, you know, there has been a, a huge effort by the people uh, in conjunction with, with the efforts of of, of Kana to take the, the drug dealers on. And I think we're in a, a reasonably good place. I never say we're there, but we're certainly in a reasonably good place as compared to what we would have been five, six years ago. Mm. And it, it does take a concerted effort, and it takes everybody to say, no, we're not going to put up with this. And I think, you know, the people of Doha have to be commended for their, their resolute stand against drug dealers and uh, it has been tough I will say that it's, 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 this is it's not an easy business to be in and you need to be battle hardened to, to, to take it uh, take it on but it's the families that I have huge empathy for because you know they're, they're, they're ordinary people I've sat with many of them in their homes sat with a number of them in the station here and you listen to their tales of uh, woe and destruction where you know their their mm. son or their daughter have got involved with drug dealers let you know getting initially small amounts of cocaine for their own use and then getting involved with the dealers they're inveigled into you know supplying drugs storing drugs storing guns pipe bombs and next thing they're asked to do uh, some of the most terrible deeds drive people for shootings uh, petrol bomb people's houses all to pay back the debts that they owe to certain families who are living in this town mm. now, I will say that uh, you know there's a, a, a number of them uh, before the courts there's a number of them have received custodial sentences which is good it certainly tells people that uh, you know there, there is a penalty to pay for your your activities but that can be slow the, the, the judicial response can be slow because obviously you know the rule of law has to, has to take place and take its course but you know bringing people before the courts and taking their asses off them that is a, a long-term gain but the sh- it's, it's in the short term people can get very frustrated as regards what, what, what are we what are the police actually doing mm. in relation to it so it, it has been difficult I will say that yeah, and there's uh, fear for personal safety as well because people get caught up in uh, the crossfire it's no joke if somebody burns your house down or your neighbour's house down or, or if you feel the breeze of a bullet passing by it's that close as we know has been the case with uh, some innocent bystanders as such you came to this area uh, chief superintendent with a wealth of experience uh, of similar problems in dublin and limerick i think and how would you compare the problem in the drogheda region uh, generally speaking well 
I, look, it, it, it obviously it was it was very serious. I worked in in, in Crumlin, Drimna, and I would have worked in Store Street when we had difficulties in the Sheriff Street area. Um, it, it it certainly it probably was more violent, uh, and, and unfortunately, I, I'd have to say it was way more violent in that. Uh, they literally decided the, the two gangs involved decided it was going to be a fight to the death and the people who got caught between it and that be, that would be the public and obviously uh, the guards were going to pay a price So and there was a heavy price paid by a number of families unfortunately with, with the, the death of loved ones but as you say the, the, you know, the threats to property let it be you know, a, a petrol bomb a pipe bomb or bullets through your window uh, you know, at three o'clock in the morning is absolutely terrifying, and um, you know it, it. It definitely probably was, in my estimation, the, the most violent dispute the state has seen uh, for nearly since its foundation. Uh, it has been very, very tough because there were so many people involved. We 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 had, we had an excess of two hundred people <clears throat> working on both sides. Um, you know, who every night were intent on causing. Uh, physical damage to either property or people and uh, it took a lot to manage it definitely took a lot to manage it uh, in a city it, 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 can, it can be a little bit easier believe it or not because you have a lot more resources you have a lot more uh, police in the area whereas in Drogheda you're, you're literally dependent upon what you have at your disposal on a particular night to, to deal with it because all the other areas in Mead have their own problems own difficulties to deal with so it's a, it's a kind of a more isolated battle than you would have in, in, in an urban area. After 40 years as a, a policeman and a senior policeman uh, for that matter and uh, as a guard who spent so many years working uh, against uh, the drug gangs and uh, the crimes related uh, to the drug dealers, uh, do you believe that we're taking the right approach? Uh, do you have a personal opinion? I'm not sure if you're able to express it at this stage about the sale and consumption of drugs and if that should be dealt with through the criminal justice system or should we look to other approaches such as dealing with it as a, a health issue? Well, look, I don't think I was ever uh, afraid to give my opinion, Michael. I, and we certainly, what we're doing is not working as as, you, as we can see because we have a huge cocaine problem not alone in Drada, not alone in Loud but all over the county, all over the country uh, you know I mean there's there's a huge amount of young people uh, involved in you know cocaine or, what, or whatever their drug of choice is so we, we certainly have to look at uh, our demand reduction, how, how, how can we assist people who are in the throes of addiction and you know, our demand reduction agencies need to be hugely resourced as compared to what they are at the moment. We do have fantastic people working in, let's say, the Red Door Project here, the Family Edition Network in Dundalk, and they're, they're all working tirelessly to deal with the difficulties you know, that, that comes from drug addiction. And, you know, a considerable amount of people are take drugs. They're not involved in crime, per se, as going out stealing, shooting, uh, that sort of thing. But they are... Uh, you know, working to feed their own habit, and then when it breaks down, they get involved in crime because they owe, owe too much money. So, it's it's the demand reduction policies that we need to probably put a huge amount of effort into uh, to to try and find out. But is it how, right how to say that not all drug users are, are addicts? Uh, I mean, you mentioned drug of choice, and you know, some people will tell you, look, you know, I had a, a few lines of Charlie at the weekend. 
Uh, and the last time I took cocaine was two years ago and it'll probably be two years before I take it again but that's my choice I like it and so on uh, and if so many people are using it can they all be wrong should there be respect if that's what people want to do to allow them to do that and that if you were to deal with it differently let's say you were able to go to a doctor and get a prescription go up to your pharmacist and get your vial of cocaine or, or whatever it is uh, wouldn't that mean that we wouldn't be waking up on a, a Monday morning to hear that somebody was sitting in a bath with a, a gang of criminals around them and a gun in their mouths. Well, that's certainly a debate, Michael, for, for I, I think, a longer period of time than, than we actually have together know, this but, morning. But, if, but given if, your experience, you know... My, my, my experience is that, unfortunately, a considerable amount of people would not actually take that approach that they, they would to say, take two lines next Friday night and not touch it for two years. It, it, it's not as simple as that. Unfortunately, what happens is people... Uh, you know, they, they, they do become addicted to cocaine and, and crack cocaine or heroin, crack, co- crack heroin. It, it, it is a very, very difficult and dangerous drug uh, because it does consume your life because no more than somebody who is addicted to alcohol, one of the first thoughts in the morning is when they get up, where am I going to get it? How am I going to get it? The, the, their income from their ordinary job, let's say they're working wherever they're working, will run out because of the fact that they're consuming more than they're actually earning. They're consuming far more, and then they get involved in criminality. So <clears throat> the whole mm. debate about legalising drugs is, is probably one that needs a, a, a national debate, and mm. probably a, a very serious national debate. Well, there will be a citizen's yeah. assembly eventually, but I think when you take out those points, the criminality would stop because the drugs wouldn't be so expensive uh, and uh, the policing uh, wouldn't be necessary. So the money that goes into the policing could go into providing support and health services and that sort of thing. It may do in, in, in some areas, but unfortunately, criminals are very, very inventive. And they've defined their ways around, uh, you know, the, the systems that are brought in by government. Uh, yes, the the the, the imprisonment, imprisonment of people, you know, for small amounts of, of drugs. No, that that's not right. We all know that. But unfortunately, there are people in this town, in this county, in this country, who will always uh, make it their aim to. Uh, illegally make money. They're, they're not going to mm. go about making money legally. So the law was be on the, the make. The law was trying to circumvent systems and that's what they will do yeah. if, well, no matter what system is brought here. Whether in, it's DVDs or cigarettes yeah. or diesel or whatever the yeah. case may yeah. be, whatever makes money on the black market, there's exactly. no doubt about it. And I, I think any of us who know people personally whose lives were destroyed by drugs or lost their lives as a result of drugs overdoses or issues related to that will uh, know that there's a, a real problem uh, but I think that at the same time, that's a, a discussion that we'll, we'll be having, as you say, because of uh, that Citizens' Assembly. After 40 years on the force, though, Chief Superintendent, uh, <laughs> how will you fill your days after such uh, an incredible career and such a challenging career? Is it pipe and slippers or what do you intend? Oh, God, no, no pipe and slippers. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I've never worn slippers. <laughs> I, I gave up smoking when I was about 17. So anyway, um, no, um, look, at I have a lot of other interests, obviously, in, in sport. I'm involved in, in in training a team or two, so that that's that's my that's my uh, interest. But uh, look, no, I, I, there are other opportunities that I, I I will be taking up in relation to you know similar type investigative work. Uh, I'm I'm lucky that I have been involved in Angarjikana for 40 years, and and it, you know it's an honour to have 
served not only the people of Drogheda but the people of the country uh, you know for, you know, I always say it's a privilege and an honour if somebody rings you at 3 o'clock in the morning to come in and investigate some atrocity that has taken place because people are putting their trust and store in, in you and in the ability of your team that you will assemble and it's, it's, it's never about one person doing all this Michael this is a complete team effort I met a, a very young probationer guarder here in my office yesterday it was her first day in a guard Shikana and you know, she spoke about, you know, her dreams for the next number of years uh, and how she's going to work in Angarajikana. And I thought it was fantastic because obviously I'm coming to the end of my career. But uh, what I would say to anybody thinking of joining Angarajikana, do so. Because it's uh, a very, very good career. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's it, it, to a certain degree, <laughs> I could consider it as a hobby in a way because, you know, you're investigating serious crime. If you know you should be able to do a reasonably good job after thirty or forty years because you you've had enough practice at at it, but you know the, the, this division has suffered you know some of the most serious crimes you know the, the murder of Detective Garda Adrian Donahue and uh, obviously the murder of the Garda Tony Golden. So they they have been the difficult days, but um, you know the, the, the people of Loud have you know provided us with huge support. But as opposed to answer your question, I will have uh, an, a number of projects to take on. Uh, I certainly will miss Angarajikana. I'll miss the people, uh, the, the daily interaction that I would have with maybe you know countless people throughout the day, uh, people calling in, looking to meet in relation to the difficulties. And it's always been you know a privilege for me to be able to say, listen, I can help you with that problem. We can make your day better. We can make your family's life better. Uh, and we'll put a plan in place to do so to help them out. And... You know, even criminals. I, 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 you know, I've got a few phone calls from some of the more senior criminals that I, I would have dealt with over the years just to tell me good luck, and someone would like to see him gone. But you know, in the main, they're they're a friendly bunch too when you get to know them well. Okay, <laughs> remarkable. Uh, a gold watch, but not the gold watch blues, obviously, uh, for Christy Mangan. Uh, I know that uh, people are very grateful and thankful for the work that you've done uh, and uh, that you'll be missed greatly. You've certainly made yourself very accessible to people in a way that we wouldn't ordinarily be used to. But we thank you uh, from the perspective of the radio station for always being available to discuss some of the most serious problems uh, that uh, people were living with, not just uh, stories that were front page news or whatever, but, but that people were living with and that you were there to respond to their fears and their needs and to give reassurance uh, at a, a time that was very testing for all of us in the region. And thank you and best of luck to you on your retirement. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you indeed. That's uh, retiring Chief Superintendent from the Loud Garda Division, Christy Mack. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Erectus Committee on Enterprise, Trade and Employment heard uh, about a lot of concern relating to the cost of fuel and indeed pricing practices relating to the cost of fuel for that matter. Over the past two weeks, we've received almost 200 complaints from the general public and from public representatives about fuel pricing. In general, these complaints allege that filling stations have failed to pass on the excise duty reduction in a timely manner, or that they have exploited the current economic situation to raise fuel prices and increase profits. Some complaints include allegations of collusion, and a few contain information about price movements at particular filling stations. 
We've also received a number of complaints relating to allegations of filling stations turning off their roadside pricing displays. Right, that's the chairman of uh, the regulator of the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, the CCPC, Geoffrey Godfrey, speaking uh, to that committee yesterday. Paddy Cummin is head of communications with AA Ireland. And Paddy, the industry was saying yesterday the complaints were misinformed uh, that uh, the fuel had already been bought before uh, the Prices should have come down. Uh, what's your read on all of this? Uh, do you believe that there were legitimate complaints? Well, well I was sitting um, in one of the committees yesterday, um, one of the one of the afternoon sessions where we were there with the the the, the, uh, the fuel retailers association and fuels for Ireland. And, and you know what? In listening to the argument uh, from from them, there was a couple of things that you know it was very educational. I think, firstly, for for anyone who was who was in attendance. The, the major, what it looks like, certainly from, from from our point of view, is that the majority of retailers were acting honourably. The, the margins are seem to be very very small for the few re- retailers, and also, uh, I, and I think it was something that was very much acknowledged during the committee meeting was that there was technically no way that excise could have dropped overnight because. Uh, because of the nature of how fuel is purchased, and I think that became quite clear during uh, the hearings yesterday. So, in a lot of cases, uh, a fuel retailer might have bought fuel at a certain price a week before or two weeks before. Uh, you know, deliveries mm. happen two, three, four times a day in some cases. So, I, I, you know, what seems to have come out as a result of this is that any future announcements, and certainly in terms of excise, will include the caveat of look this price will change, but possibly not overnight. Right, so uh, there was a mistake or an oversight and uh, people's expectations were too high. Uh, And you'd accept what uh, the fuels industry was saying. You were uh, speaking at the Transport Committee yesterday where you also heard from a lot of people who were concerned about the price of petrol, coach operators and school bus operators and so on. Uh, And it is pretty unsustainable for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we were there from the AA in, in a reasonably neutral capacity insofar as we were just stating the costs that are being, you know, borne by people, you know, obviously the tour operators, bus operators. But, you know, from our point of view, we were talking uh, specifically about the average motorist. And, and, you know, we were pointing out charges that I've spoken to you about before insofar as that for the average motorist, you know, someone driving a, a Volkswagen Golf or a Ford Focus around at the moment, they're paying they're paying about seven or eight hundred euro more per year than they were two years ago. So, so that is a significant increase. Um, uh, you know, and, and we know that those costs have massively, massively increased uh, over the last number of years. So, so there's no doubt that the, 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 the you know that the situation isn't improving. And, and you know there were obviously concerns and th- things that were discussed during the, the committee meetings were about supply. Uh, you know, this is, it was alarming to see that at one stage. We were down to one day's uh, supply of diesel in the country um, during the height of the uh, of the um, the price hikes, if, if you like. You know what I mean? That once we were reaching that two euro per litre mark, you know, fuel for Ireland did say that there was a, there was a point where we were at one day supply of diesel in Ireland. Now that's not something that people need to worry about. That has been resolved, but um, it does point to a potentially precarious situation. Um, as a result of what we're seeing, and you know, and with supplies mm. from Ukraine, from Russia, etc. But look, overall, 
I, you know, I think well, there's two things there, Betty, uh, because uh, there could be a, a move, an agreement made today to cut off Russian oil supplies, uh, uh, which would be very bad and would see those queues that people remember from the 70s and so on uh, to try and get petrol or diesel. Uh, and the other thing then, of course, is uh, that there's hope that the European leaders will uh, agree uh, that uh, there can be something done about VAT and that could help to bring down prices. So yes. you have a, a yin and yang there sort of thing. Yeah, two, two things there, Michael. Like, firstly, that the, the, the queues thing will become a self-fulfilling prophecy if, if that happens. If people buy their fuel normally, you won't see that situation. If you remember, I think a few, you know, last year when uh, in the UK there was queues at petrol stations, their supplies at the time were fine. It, it was just that they um, people started panic buying mm. and, and as a result that, that, that wasn't necessary. The thing about VAT, any VAT reduction, is that you will see that reduction immediately because that is at the till so mm. uh, you, well, you know if there is an announcement in relation to VAT um, that's something that customers will see as you know at the forecourt right away because VAT is, is a transaction um, that takes place at the till whereas the excise point and this was yeah. going back to what we said earlier that does take some time to filter it through Yeah I, I don't know I was a bit uncomfortable hearing about staff at petrol stations being abused uh, by customers who felt that the price should have come down yeah, this was acknowledged mm. yesterday during the during the Rockers committee meeting mm. that you know, that, and so a lot of the retailers are saying that they've um, they did have staff, uh, you know, in a lot of cases who aren't aren't paid huge amounts of money and who also came to work during the COVID, during the worst of the pandemic because they were essential workers um, receiving you know pretty awful threats and uh, just get doing their job you know and again nothing to do with them. Um, just because of uh, you know at the time when when fuel prices were over the two liter mark, two euro per liter mark. Okay, um, without uh, going into a self fulfilling prophecy, uh, as you put it about queues outside of petrol stations, uh, what would the impact would it, would that not be the impact if Russian oil exports uh, were banned? No, uh, not in the short term. It's, there are other solutions. But the, the only difficulty is that we've had quite a reliance on Russian um, fuel for, in particular for diesel and I think that's probably what has seen a lot of the increases in, in regards to diesel we would you know the la- I think the last time we spoke petrol was about uh, 10 cents uh, a litre more expensive than diesel the reverse is true now because uh, 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 you know a lot of the retailers or a lot of the bigger suppliers have backed away from Russia anyway so it's not like this is going to happen overnight this is something that's happened over the last few weeks they've backed off Russian supplies, but as a result of that, you know, the, the, there's a smaller pool of uh, markets to buy from, and that has pushed the price up a little bit, in particular for diesel. So I don't think that's going to get any better anytime soon. Um, however, um, you know, I, it's pre- it's premature to start talking about there being um, issues in supply yet. I think people just need to 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 shop as they would normally. If if everyone suddenly starts panic buying. You know that that, as I said, can, can can snowball and create a problem that doesn't exist. Okay, good to talk to you as always, Paddy. Thanks for joining us on the program this morning. That's Paddy Cummins, head of communications with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now we're drinking less, far less uh, than was uh, the case 20 years ago, 30% less. This is according to Revenue, which also says we're drinking 10% uh, less, or at least we did, uh, between 2019 and 2021. Let's speak uh, to Sheila Gilhini, Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland. Good morning, Sheila, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Music to your ears, no doubt, uh, but what do you think is behind it? Well, good morning, Michael, and thanks very much for having us on. Um, I suppose, you know, if you're to look at the last two years, there are there's several things actually that are, are at play here. So obviously during COVID uh, times, we had a lot of closures of um, hospitality, restrictions on travel, restrictions on, on gatherings, whatever, and things like that. So um, I think that's not surprising that we would see a drop in alcohol use over the last two years. But I think alongside that, uh, and, and you are right, there has been um, a, a steady decrease, small decreases now over, over the last number of years. And we think that perhaps, um, you know, some of the, the issues that have been raised, you know, consistently and some of the measures that are starting to come into place. So, for example, um, restrictions on the amount, on the type of outdoor advertising that you'd see for alcohol, restrictions on um, uh, the, the placement of alcohol products. Uh, so, for example, in supermarkets, that um, separation, you know, which is limited, but it, it, mm. it, it is, it is you know, something there. Uh, and other restrictions, like, for example, around um, loyalty card points in, in supermarkets not being able to be used for, for alcohol. So there are small measures, but some of them, you know, we do feel are starting to come into play and that there is perhaps just a wider recognition of, um, I suppose, the harm that can come from alcohol and, you know, p- people starting to get the message on that. Now, having said all of that, um, I think we're still some way off uh, from where we'd, we'd like to be. You know, if you were to look at just, you know, the level of alcohol use in, in the country at the moment, if we were all to drink at the, uh, the HSE low-risk drinking guidelines, we'd actually be drinking about 35% less than what we're currently, currently drinking. But as I say, we are pleased to see the, the, um, these figures that have come from revenue. Okay. If uh, we drank less between 2019 and 2021, when the pubs were closed and all that was available was cheaper drink uh, and people chose not to drink the cheaper drink, does that not undermine the argument for minimum unit pricing? Well, I would say that, you know, if you're just to look at the, the last year there where we dropped by 4.7, you know, per- percent, there was, um, you know, that's actually a very small reduction if you consider just the, the amount of closure of, um, of of pubs and restaurants, you know, that was in that time. So what we were seeing was a very big increase in the, the level of home drinking. So just as, as an example, um, you know, in the, in the period coming up to Christmas 2021, the volumes of alcohol being sold in supermarkets was up 31% on 2019. But the value of that that alcohol being sold was only up eleven percent. So mm. that that will tell you that that was very very cheap alcohol. But still much cheaper, and, and still even with minimum unit pricing. I mean, uh, what is it one seventy uh, for a, a can of beer? I don't know. You get a, a pint for four or five, five fifty, six euro some places. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And look, what we yeah. are seeing, I think, actually in, in, in supermarkets is um, a, a reformulation of the, the, the product offering. So, for example, um, you know, if, if you're going into a supermarket and prepared mm. to spend, you know, say 20 euro and you'd normally got a certain number of cans, you know, for that amount, what we're seeing is that manufacturers are starting to adjust the alcohol content, you know, in, within a particular can. Mm. So they're reducing the, 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 the level of alcohol. Yeah, that's but there. A, a, at a time when you could buy a pint, if you like, for a euro, 
uh, and you you couldn't go to the pub and buy a pint for five euro, let's say, people were drinking less. Does that not undermine the argument for minimum unit pricing? Surely people are, are drinking what they want rather than because of whether it's cheap or expensive. Um, I, I certainly don't see any uh, argument against uh, introducing MEP. People do drink what, uh, you, you know, that they're, they're very price sensitive. Uh, that's really what, what I would say. And we would certainly see this, and there's evidence for this right across the, the world that um, controls the, mm. the, the three big things that really make a difference to the, the level of alcohol that's used. But are how, price, how, how do you. Ability and marketing. Sorry, how do you explain that argument? If. You make it possible for people to go out and buy much more expensive alcohol, five times the price, and they go out and they buy it, and they buy an awful lot more of it, 10% more. Um, sorry, I think I just missed actually what, what you, you were okay. saying. There. So, so you can buy drink for a, a euro a pint, uh, and people are drinking X amount. Uh, and then suddenly the pubs open again and you can buy drink for five euro a pint. And people go out and they buy that more expensive drink uh, and they're drinking 10% more. Uh, how is that? Um, well, at, at, at the moment, actually, uh, the, the, the figures are actually saying that they're drinking 10% less than the, what they had been drinking back in, in 2019. Um, I mean, people do go out to pubs uh, and restaurants, you know, um, to, to meet people. It's a different experience, I suppose, uh, than, than drinking at, at, at home. Um, price is a, a definite driver of um, alcohol use. <clears throat> and um, we can certainly we could see that actually in supermarkets that when prices were were very low, mm. mo- much yeah, more. Maybe I'm not explaining it well. The the thing is that when the drink is more expensive, people are drinking more of it. Um. <laughs> I, all I can all I can say is just I'm, I'm looking at the figures of what we have. That um, you know the, the the amount of alcohol being drunk in the last two years has de- declined. There were pubs open for part of that time. There were supermarkets open for all of that that time. Uh, back in 2019, people were drinking at at high levels. There's no doubt about about that. Um, and I suppose there's just a, there's a combination of things at play there. There's the availability of it. You know whether a particular premises is open. There's the amount of it that's available for sale, and there's also the marketing of it. You know, like how much um, exposure um, of, of marketing do you see, whether that's online or whether it's uh, on, on uh, outdoor advertisements or on the TV or radio. So all of those things do come into play. Okay. Well, people are drinking less, and that has to be a good thing in itself, regardless of what the reason is. Sheila, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. Thank you indeed. Sheila Gilhaney is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland. Now, some comments before we go. A listener on WhatsApp who didn't want their name read out says there's no houses for people as it is. And uh, we're providing houses uh, and money and a lot more for uh, Ukrainians coming uh, to the country. I feel sorry for them, but it was not Ireland that did this to people. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jim Navin, disgusting to think that landlords would take advantage of desperate women by asking for sex in return for accommodation. It's a sad reflection of our housing crisis. People are finding it a real struggle to find houses to rent that they can afford. Glad to see that uh, the legislation got cross-party support. Well, it wasn't blocked by the government, which is not quite the same thing as it getting the support. Uh, Sinead uh, from Midlouth says... 
uh, that to see so many women and children fleeing their homes with just uh, their bags on their backs is truly awful and very upsetting. You just have to put yourself in their shoes. How terrified and bewildered they must feel leaving what was once a safe place, their home behind them. Many have husbands and sons and fathers and brothers still there fighting and how hard it must have been to say goodbye not knowing if they'd ever see each other again. Everything we can do for them, we must do. It's just heartbreaking. And all I keep thinking is imagine if that was me and my children. Well, thank you, Sinead, for sharing that thought, the final thought. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.